Thank you. Um, so thanks very much for the invitation to come and speak to all this afternoon. Um, uh, what I'm going to talk about is, as has been said, just uh, the, the kind of end point of an ESRC project. Uh, it's a three-year project trying to understand um, the process of asylum dispersal, but also how that process has changed. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. The one thing I'm currently waiting to hear from the ESRC is what happens when you stop being a future research leader. I've no idea whether that means I'm now an actual research leader or just someone who used to have some kind of future ahead of me, and that's now lost. Um, maybe you can tell me at the end of this where you think I kind of stand on that scale. Um, so I want to start really with um, four short kind of vignettes or thoughts, really, quotes. Um, so the first of these comes from um, a representative of the international security firm G4S in evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee in 2013. So he said one of the reasons we have that model, he's talking about the asylum accommodation process in the UK, is that providers we use are experienced in operating in the asylum-seeking market. Now, to me, I may, I've not done extensive research on this phrase, but this was, I think, one of the first times that this terminology was explicitly used in a kind of public um, political context in the UK. And what's notable about it for me was that it wasn't really picked up. There wasn't any great opposition to this concept of asylum suddenly becoming a marketplace, being marketised, and that this was the kind of thing you could say to a bunch of MPs as a kind of explicit political um, kind of and, and kind of uh, corporate claim. So I want to kind of leave that in your in your minds. I, I talk. The second uh, kind of starting point I want to get you to think about. Um, is some relatively obvious uh, kind of targets, Daily Mail. It's got to be done, so we'll get out of the way early. Um, and this was a story from February two, 1999 about um, refugees and asylum seekers being uh, housed in holiday camps and hotels in the south coast of England. Um, and this was really a kind of the culmination of two or three years of media pressure about um, asylum seekers being housed um, what, in what were seen to be inappropriate kind of places on the south coast. That local authorities were struggling to deal with um, asylum populations, and so there was this kind of concern that, that people were being put up in, in, uh, in inappropriate places. Inappropriate meaning somehow nice, basically. You can kind of read that as. But what's interesting about this, this happened in 1999, and was one of the reasons why in 2000 the UK started a programme of dispersal. So the, the, uh, the no-choice movement of asylum seekers to different parts of the country to be accommodated whilst in the process of seeking asylum. Fast forward to 2013, and this was one example from a number, um, and you have pretty much the same headline. Slightly different, um, asylum seekers being staying at a luxury hotel, these kind of things. But in a way, not that much has changed in this time period. Um, and we can see these headlines still going on today. So one of the things I was interested about in this project was what's happened between 99 and 2013, 14, 15. Because a lot of policy changes have taken place, but we seem to be kind of back where we were. So the third point, in terms of being back where we were, um, two quotes from some of the empirical work that I was doing around the country looking at dispersal. It feels with all the changes in contracts and priorities and so on that they're always trying to reinvent the wheel. It's just that the wheel gets a little bit worse each time. So someone from Birmingham, similarly from Cardiff, we seem to be going back in time when it comes to support services. Opportunities have been closing down and it's really difficult to try and turn that tide once it starts. So if we think about this transition from 99 to 2013, it's not surprising that we still have a kind of media 
focus and concern with this notion of asylum seekers being um, in some way provided for by the state in, in uh, not entirely shabby accommodation. But what this suggests is that these processes of policy change that I'm going to talk about have really been constantly about a, a policy churn, uh, an attempt to, to continually sort of view asylum and refugee policy as a, an emergency concern. We can see this right now, we can see this um, in response to places like Calais and so on. Um, and so this, this idea that we need to be on a, a kind of backward footing. So what I want to talk about today is this kind of idea of what's been happening in the dispersal system, but how that affects support services. So the theme of the, the seminars is migration and kind of well-being and thinking about the well-being of migrants. Um, and so I was thinking about how we can understand the well-being of people within the asylum dispersal system. What processes are in place to ensure that well-being and how has that been affected by this? And I want to talk um, about very small kind of instances of care and concern and responsibility, small spaces of consideration. So the fourth um, kind of opening point, I suppose, that I have comes from Cardiff. Um, this is not representative of the entirety of Cardiff. This is a picture of just around the corner from um, a drop-in centre that I worked at um, uh, as part of this fieldwork. And I want to read a, an account from this. So Cardiff, mid-morning. A community centre hall with a kitchen to one side. High ceilings and cast iron radiators on full blast. Strung over the radiators are coats, a shirt, a pair of men's trousers and a jacket with Fanta embroidered on the back. They're all soaked from the rain outside. And around the room sit groups of predominantly men, chatting in a multitude of languages, drinking tea and coffee from a vast metal urn. They're waiting patiently, either for their clothes to dry or for their turn on the pool table. I'm talking with an Iranian man in his mid-twenties, the owner of the Fanta jacket, uh, a guy called Ali. He's recounting his love of wrestling to me. In Iran, he was a wrestler for a club side. Over here, he says there are no good wrestling clubs in Cardiff. The only good ones are in Manchester and London. If he gets refugee status, he plans to move to London, to a club that he knows of. Since being dispersed to Cardiff, he says that he's gained £10 as he can't train here. He's unable to eat the stuff that he wants to eat because he can't get the right food in Cardiff, and even if he could, he couldn't afford it. As we talk, he's accessing Facebook on his phone, and he leans over to show me a picture of him wrestling. With a grin, he tells me, all the best wrestlers are Iranian. Now, as you can probably tell, I don't have a great deal of experience in wrestling, um, so I can't adjudicate that claim. But what I want to kind of take from this sense is this idea of these spaces, these spaces of really kind of small social interaction and contact. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in the presentation today. So what I want to do is three things. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the work that I've been doing um, in various parts of the UK, working around asylum. Then I'm going to think about how this transition from uh, a system of dispersal focused on local authorities to a fo focus on private providers, um, people like G4S and their asylum-seeking market, the way that has had a series of effects for both local authorities, power structures, but also for these sorts of support services. And then finally, I'm going to consider how we understand those services and what we can say about them as sites of, of politics, sites of um, alternative thinking around asylum and refugee politics. So the work I've been doing has been centrally trying to understand how different cities do or understand their kind of role within the asylum dispersal system. 
So I'm a kind of urban and political geographer, so I'm interested in the role of the city as a space of, of p- potential sanctuary to some extent. So I've been looking at four places, Birmingham, Cardiff, Glasgow and Sunderland, doing lots of interviews with various different people who are kind of positioned differently within the asylum uh, support and dispersal uh, process. And I've also been doing a kind of background work around kind of media, observational um, work in uh, drop-in spaces and so on. And that came to an end uh, around about um, nine months ago, effectively. So I'm still kind of working through a lot of this material um, and writing um, on it at the moment. So some of this stuff is kind of work in progress, as I'm sure everyone says when they stand here. Um, So what's happened in the asylum dispersal process? So dispersal started in 2000 and was largely set up as a series of connections between local authorities and the Home Office. Then over the years that process became increasingly um, diversified so that other housing providers, some of those private, some of them um, public sector or um, social housing associations came in and formed these kind of consortiums. But in uh, 2012, um, the government decided that they were going to shift away from this and that they were going to move to a model of centralised contracts for dispersal and that these contracts were going to be tendered out um, as it says here, as, as a means to uh, kind of meet austerity, uh, austerity demands. So you get a move from mixed consortiums of local authorities and other providers to three big players. So you've got G4S and Serco, who are international security conglomerates, do things like deportation flights and detention centres. And you've got a firm called Clearout or Clear Springs. They kind of go by varying names depending on which part of the country you're in. And they effectively are a kind of large-scale social housing provider. They have a little bit of experience of doing some of this work before, um, but not specifically with asylum seekers. Circo and G4S have no experience of social housing um, in this way. So this was one of the key aspects of what I was trying to look at. How do different cities position themselves in relation to this transition? How do they understand what's going on here? But... At the time that I was doing the research, a second transition was also taking place. And that was around support services and support structures. So previously, advice and support for asylum seekers who were dispersed was outsourced to a whole series of different, often quite small-scale organisations. People like the Northern Refugee Centre in the north of England, uh, the Refugee Council, the Scottish Refugee Council, these sorts of organisations. Along a similar kind of logic of of trying to cut costs and, and simplify this process... Uh, the Home Office decided to centralise this support into one organisation, an organisation called Migrant Help. And part of the kind of cost-cutting aspect of this was to move away from previous provision, which was based upon drop-in services and face-to-face support, and towards a system of telephone advice. So the idea was that you would have no face-to-face contact across the entirety of the dispersal system in the UK, and that all advice would be provided over the phone in uh, the top eight languages of people who are being uh, dispersed, um, according to to statistics. Um, I know this sounds ridiculous, um, but don't worry, because there is a vulnerability check there, uh, whereby there are four stages of vulnerability that are assessed over the phone. Um, And so if you meet the the top level of vulnerability, you can get a face-to-face meeting within a week. So there are uh, checks and balances there. What's happened since that? So that started in 2013-14, kind of at the turn of the year, um, is that migrant help are being increasingly pushed back to provide some form of face-to-face provision. That's what's going on right now. 
is that across the country, support services um, and kind of drop-in providers and these kind of things are sort of saying, you know, we can't actually carry on with this model. There needs to be some form of face-to-face support. But they're being pushed from both sides. They've got the Home Office on the one hand saying, this is the contract, you're only getting this amount of money. Um, and they've got the demand far outstripping that, that need. And so what this does to other support services is it increases demand on those. Because if you're an asylum seeker in Cardiff um, and you have a problem, you're not going to necessarily ring that phone number. If you ring that phone number and don't get an immediate kind of response, you're going to go to a support service that provides some kind of face-to-face contact and that you know. And so there's, there's various things kind of going on here. I think if we think about how we can interpret and understand these, the most obvious and first place to look, um, other than kind of viewing this as, as part of a kind of regressive um, and, and potentially exclusionary kind of state politics, is the politics of austerity um, and, and the kind of context from 2010 in which a lot of these decisions were taken. Fran Tonkis has talked about, in terms of urban austerity, a dual logic of cutback and crackdown as being essential to the way that cities are, are often at the kind of forefront of austerity politics. And what you do is you cut back support services, but you also attach that kind of economic logic to a social, socially regressive logic of cracking down upon uh, populations that you see to be as marginal or you see to be as, as problematic in some ways. So there's a kind of social and economic um, kind of entwining of these different logics for Tonkis. And she draws a lot on Jamie Peck's uh, kind of stuff on austerity urbanism and his claim that um, austerity serves as a kind of prelude to instability and degradation, to crisis management, backfilling efforts on the part of non-profit organisations and de facto abandonment of certain areas of support and uh, and state um, uh, control to some extent. And I think we can see many of these sorts of features in what I'm going to talk about in terms of this transition from local authorities to private providers. We can see some of this aspect of backfilling efforts of support organisations and charities trying to fill in the gaps where they can, particularly around this migrant help transition. But I also think it's a little bit too simplistic to say what's happened since 2010 is basically a kind of result of austerity. Because for me, this kind of dual logic of cutback and crackdown isn't anything necessarily new, especially when we're thinking about the asylum dispersal system. I think that this has been going on pretty much since its inception. It started in 2000. There was about a six-month period where it was relatively well-resourced and supported. And then since then, there have been kind of waves of aspects of support. But predominantly, the story, I think, has been one of progressive attempts to cut back the financial support for it, but also to crack down on the kind of the, the social and political support behind it. So we have to be kind of careful, I suppose, in, in viewing this as purely a, a kind of austerity measure. So I want to think about what effects this um, process has had. What effects have we seen from this transition from local authorities to private providers? So the first of these is perhaps inevitably a loss of um, capacity a loss of expertise. So local authorities are increasingly under strain for a whole variety of other purposes and reasons alongside the, these tensions. But they're also increasingly uh, being positioned in a way that gives them no incentive to be involved in the asylum system anymore. There's no real uh, desire for them to, to actually uh, take part in this. So Laura, who uh, works for a support organisation in the Midlands, says, in terms of Compass Transition, you lost 
council officers who are trained up in asylum issues. I think generally across the council services, there's a lack of knowledge about asylum, and that's probably because they don't have any mandate to work with asylum seekers anymore. So you have local authorities who have dispersed populations within their kind of area, but no longer have any real mandate to work with those populations and don't really have any kind of incentive to continue providing funding or support for the expertise that used to be there for these for these groups. So if we think about this, we've got a loss of kind of capacity and a loss of expertise. But at the same time, the kind of shift of funding from local authorities and consortiums to private providers has had a, another knock-on effect. It's not just about the loss of expertise. It's also about the loss of the kind of um, the, the, the potential overspill of some of that kind of funding as well. So Asher from Birmingham says, I think when the local authorities were in contract, they obviously had vested interest in it. And the money from the contract would then go back into support services in that area. So there were ways in which some of that money could be um, funded uh, and, and funneled into different areas of support and not purely into a, a, a kind of profit-making model. So this is one of the ways in which um, this shift from local authority to, to private providers has um, not only seen a reduction in the, the investments being put into the contract, but it also means that other support services in Birmingham, Cardiff, Man, uh, Sunderland, Glasgow, these kind of places, are not getting the opportunities to apply for uh, local authority money because it just isn't there anymore. And the third kind of key aspect that I want to highlight, I suppose, is an increasing geographical disparity between dispersal and support services. So um, Paul, who works for a national organisation, says if you look at a map of dispersal areas in the UK, it's quite clear that the Home Office, office have made that decision or processed that decision based on housing. And that's always been the case. Um, Deborah Phillips' work in the mid-2000s highlighted this um, and work kind of by Rogers Etter and others at the start of dispersal, also highlighted the fact that dispersal was very much being focused upon areas of low-cost uh, social housing um, and hard-to-let social housing in particular. That the types of local authorities who initially signed up to dispersal were ones who wanted to ensure they could, um, they could keep profitability through that process. But what's happened now and what's distinct here is that over the 15 years that dispersal was in place, you started to see support services built up around those areas of dispersal. So places like Glasgow built up support infrastructure and uh, uh, advocacy organisations, um, uh, sanctuary movements, these kind of things. And they were kind of broadly mapped onto where dispersal was happening. But since this shift in, through Compass, what we see is actually shifts within the geography of dispersal. Partly because G4S, Serco and ClearOut aren't procuring properties from local authorities. They're procuring properties from the private rental sector. And so they're having to look in different marketplaces and they're having to kind of push into different geographical regions. And so part of this means that you have areas that don't have a history of dispersal and now being kind of opened up as new dispersal areas. And so part of the reason we have that quote about why we're kind of going back and reinventing the wheel because we're, we're sort of returning to, the, to, to that initial process of, of breaking uh, new ground in terms of new areas. But the distinction now is that there isn't the political will or indeed the, the kind of financial support to actually provide those services that, that were provided back in 2000 and 2001. So an example of this would be in the northeast, 
where uh, traditionally Newcastle and Sunderland were the two major dispersal areas. Uh, Middlesbrough and Stockton had smaller dispersal numbers. Since Compass, um, the main provider of housing in that area, the subcontractor who work with um, G4S, have their main stock in Middlesbrough and Stockton. And so those are now the kind of major areas of dispersal, which means that Newcastle, which has a strong... Uh, kind of in, institutional setup and series of support services is seeing far fewer asylum seekers arriving than somewhere like Middlesbrough that has uh, much less kind of support infrastructure um, and provision. And so you've got this kind of disparity. As it says here, geography of kind of new dispersal accommodation is often distinct from the kind of past uh, support. But you also see significant variations in the amount of uh, support between different local authorities. This is something I'll come back to. But you can see the ways in which um, some areas have tried to kind of continue providing support services. Some areas have been actually quite pleased to sort of wash their hands of this as, as a policy concern. And the civil society response to this goes back to this notion of backfilling, of increasingly being kind of mainstreamed. If we want to call this a big society, we, uh, we could do, I suppose. Um, but it's increasingly precarious. So support services are being expected to be done by the third sector and by charities without necessarily there being the, the funding to support that. And the final kind of effect of Compass, I think, is to place increasing pressure on those services that survive. So whilst the support for those services is not necessarily there anymore, migrant helper are kind of uh, doing any advocacy, um, um, any advice that needs to be done, um, it means that the services that are still in existence are often the strongest ones. They're the most resilient. But even despite their resilience, they're under increasing pressure. And one of the reasons they're under increasing pressure is because there's a deferral of responsibility within Compass. So this is Warren, who works for an RCO in Birmingham. He says that G4S will have a contract and they'll subcontract to someone else, who will then subcontract to someone else. So for the service users and for the agencies trying to resolve, help and resolve things, it's impossible. There's this kind of deferral of responsibility such that if you ring up the G4S helpline to report a broken boiler, they might refer you to their subcontractor, and their subcontractor might refer you to somewhere else, and they then might refer you back to G4S. So part of this is about the fact that if you're an asylum seeker, it's very difficult to actually go through all of those hoops, potentially, in terms of language, um, and also in terms of the, the, the political kind of will to complain, necessarily, given, given your vulnerability. But at the same time... Um, this means that you turn to someone like Warren. You turn to an RCO or to a support service who might do some of that work for you. One of the points here is that Warren then spends half his day ringing various uh, kind of different organisations uh, to talk about um, to talk about how you can fix this boiler. So instead of instead of spending half that day working on an advocacy case and doing legal work. He's spending time chasing all these kind of different uh, circular routes of complaints and procedures and so on. And so this takes time and resource away from other potentially more politically challenging uh, kind of areas uh, and, and uh, services and roles. So I wanted to think about, about how we can then conceptualise this, this process. And one way I think we can think about it is through notions of enclosure. So uh, a number of geographers, Alex Vassadavan, um, Colin McFarlane, Alex Jeffrey, have written around the notion of enclosure as 
not simply processes of kind of privatization and commercialization, but as ways in which uh, you close off particular imaginations, you close off ideas of alternatives. Um, and so they say that whilst enclosure is rightly seen as a technology of dispossession and subjection, taking things out of the, of the common, it also speaks, we believe, to the foreclosure of alternative forms of sociality that strive to imagine and represent that which is ultimately common. So what I want to take from this is, is this notion that when you marketise and privatise and commercialise this kind of system, not only are you uh, presenting certain kind of uh, economic rationales and facets as the, the, uh, the things that, that drive dispersal, but you're also closing down other potential alternative ways of viewing what dispersal is, how it works, what support services should look like. And you get this kind of reiterative loop, this kind of um, loop of opinion. And it's a loop of opinion that's focused very much on economic concern. So these headlines are as much about kind of economics as they are about um, kind of refugee uh, kind of responsibility and, and morality and these kind of things. They're about a logic that views um, asylum seekers and refugees as burdens, as kind of uh, ways in which you can take from the state and what can be taken and by whom and for what reasons. And it's this kind of economic concern then that, that gets returned through these notions and through um, uh, asylum as a kind of managerial issue, a managerial concern of economic policy that you look at how you can kind of manage and place people into different areas of the country, not necessarily with a concern for where would be best for them, but rather for in what ways you can, you can maximise the, 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 uh, the profits of that, that potential model. So there's more to be said there about um, what that says about our ideas of politics, what it says about ideas of responsibility within the asylum system. But I'm going to move on just to think a little bit about this notion of uh, well-being and kind of migrant experiences of this system. So if we think about what's left in this structure... You've got a move towards privatisation. You've got increasing um, constraints and pressures on support services that do exist. What's left? I've said in part that those that remain are often the most resilient and the most resourceful. But they're also incredibly precarious spaces. That drop-in centre that I talked about at the start in, in Cardiff is an example of this. Um, this is a, a kind of diagram of a, a relatively standard drop-in centre. Uh, often providing kind of space for people to interact, uh, spaces for um, kitchens and uh, food, um, and often providing kind of uh, second-hand clothes and these kind of things. So if we think about how we might consider alternatives, if we think about how we might challenge the, this notion of asylum as, uh, in some way, a kind of market-orientated process that can be uh, politically managed uh, for everyone's best interests in a way that, that isn't about responsibility and it isn't about uh, kind of political uh, social justice necessarily, but is about how we can kind of benefit uh, in different ways from, uh, from the economics of this. Then I want to think about um, Frantonkis' idea of an urbanism of minor practices. So small acts, ordinary audacities and little anti-utopias that create material spaces of hope in the city. Such spaces may matter most when urban prospects are most bleak. I think now is a good time to think that urban prospects around asylum are quite bleak, but I think it's also a time to consider what opportunities and what 
spaces of hope do actually exist. And I think they exist in, in a number of different ways. So one of those ways is in the kind of mundane practices of everyday contact between different people in the asylum system. So the things that bind people together in those types of spaces that I talked about in Cardiff. And the practices, the materials, the actual kind of everyday life of caring for other people. So things like translating letters, watching videos of men wrestling on smartphones, playing pool, playing table tennis, uh, drinking tea. Um, I drank a lot of tea in doing the fieldwork for this. But I don't think we can underestimate the importance of those kind of shared moments and gestures. And I think there's something important to be said about listening and simply being there. One of the things that recurred to me in interviewing asylum seekers in, in the UK dispersal system is it's important to just have a space where you can turn up and be with other people. And that doesn't even mean you have to speak to other people. It just means a space where you're not isolated necessarily and where you can choose to engage and interact if you want to and not if you don't want to. So I want to think a little bit about one person's kind of experience of some of this to, to give a sense of why, uh, why this might matter. This is a guy called David. So David um, was an asylum seeker in Sunderland um, and uh, I met him a number of times through working at a drop-in centre in Sunderland um, and subsequently interviewed him towards the end of my fieldwork period. Um, and he was housed in accommodation along the street from a pub that was known as an EDL meeting place. So he would tell me that he had to take the back route home as a means to avoid this. So he would never walk kind of past this pub, no matter what time of day, because he was, he was fearful of it. He said that the house he lived in was quite isolated. He wasn't aware of other asylum seeker houses in that area. And that meant that people increasingly knew that that was the house that the asylum seekers lived in. Um, they'd been subject to a number of attacks. Uh, the back garden fence had been hit with bricks. Bananas had been thrown over the fence into the garden and against the back door. The house itself was shared between six men, um, all of them from different countries. There was one kitchen, one living room and one bathroom. He described the situation as a real struggle. And this was another kind of recurrent theme that came up in, in speaking to people across the four cities that I worked in was... The, the challenges of living in shared accommodation with people from massively different cultural, linguistic and um, ethnic backgrounds. And that actually this was one of the kind of um, often unseen aspects of dispersal that was most problematic to many people, was actually how do you kind of live in incredibly stressful situations and incredibly pressurised situations with five, six other people from completely different backgrounds who are themselves in incredibly stressful and pressurised situations. So when I asked David why he thought people were sent to Sunderland, he said uh, it's cheaper to send uh, people out here to Sunderland, but if they're going to do that, there needs to be funding to allow people to do things. You shouldn't just dump people. They're just people in, they just put people in housing and leave them there. They don't care about their social and mental needs. And he argued that Sunderland kind of makes this process worse for him because... You need something to distract you in the asylum system, and there isn't anything here. He said, all we have is Wednesdays. Wednesdays was the day in which there's a drop-in centre. So Sunderland, there is one drop-in centre one day a week in the entire city. That's, that's all the kind of provision there is for asylum seekers. And he compared the city to Newcastle, saying they have art classes and charities that do all that sort of thing, much more than they do here. 
In Newcastle, they have more cultural stuff as well. It's easier to get foods there and things like that. So part of David's story is also about a kind of history of the relation between different cities in the northeast. So one of the reasons why there isn't really much else in Sunderland is that when Migrant Help took up this advice support um, contract, the support services that were in Sunderland stopped. And the only support that was available was in Newcastle. But at the same time, when dispersal started in 2000, the Home Office decided they were going to set up a centre in the northeast, and that it would be based in Newcastle, and that it wouldn't have any support um, kind of infrastructure in Sunderland, Middlesbrough and Stockton. The argument being that Sunderland was close enough to Newcastle. Now, Sunderland isn't that far from Newcastle, but if you don't have any f- means of getting there or any funding or support or means of travel to do so, it is a very long way. And so, David, I just want to conclude um, David with... He said, I struggle with the idea of having to adapt to it. I don't want to have to adapt to this as a way of, a way of life. Um, and this issue of distance really was one that the support services in Sunderland particularly took on and so what they decided to do this drop-in centre was organise a walk once a year as part of Refugee Week um, to highlight two things one, a kind of solidarity between uh, people who work in the drop-in centre and and support asylum seekers and asylum seekers and refugees themselves And secondly, to highlight the distance between Sunderland, where these people are dispersed, and the Home Office Reporting Centre in South Shields, which is around about a six and a half hour walk along the coast. Um, Now, you can get the metro, um, but a metro ticket will cost you uh, around about £5 for a return, when if you're on £35 a week is quite a significant chunk of your income. So, um, So part of this then was about highlighting the demands that the asylum system is placing on people within the reporting process. So I took part in this walk a couple of years um, running, uh, got incredibly sunburnt on this day um, three years ago. You wouldn't get it from the, uh, from the picture. Um, so we walked along, uh, along the beach, stopped and had lunch. It was very nice. Um, and we ended up getting a kind of little ferry across the Tyne to... Uh, to North Shields, not South Shields, sorry, North Shields, uh, where the Home Office Reporting Centre is. So this was six hours, it was quite nice, it was quite convivial, we got to know people, got to chat along the way, um, and this was kind of about forming friendships and solidarities and these kind of things, and precisely the sorts of things that I was talking about as being in some way valuable, as being the types of things that David was saying, they're the things that get you out of bed on a Wednesday because they give you something different within this isolation of this process. But we arrive at North Shields and the realities of the asylum system come back in. So there's about 20 of us and we're all kind of ramshackle looking kind of people, um, some academics, uh, some students, some kind of charitable types, some people from the church, some asylum seekers, some refugees. No one particularly threatening. And there's six police officers, uh, one of them in kind of like a foolish riot gear kind of get up waiting for us at the Home Office Reporting Centre because they've been told that there's going to be some giant protest. And whilst we all laughed at this and found it quite amusing at the time and, and a kind of a, a reflection of a sort of paranoid nature of, of, of the state to some extent, it was also, I think, um, incredibly 
important in that it punctured that mood. It punctured that sense of opportunity and excitement and hope and all these kind of things that had come along this walk, that we'd achieved something together, we'd done this, and then you're confronted with a line of police officers at the other end. And so the realities of that kind of asylum system keep, keep recurring, keep coming, coming back in. And so despite, um, despite this kind of notion of conviviality that was, was produced, um, I think you can't escape the, the constraints and, and the, the challenges of that, that system. So this leads me to think about the spaces of, of asylum and the spaces of care, because a lot of work on asylum seeker support services and networks has often been quite critical of this notion of, of care and notions that in some way providing spaces for people to interact um, might actually make some kind of difference, partly because it's seen to be uh, politically neutered in some ways that unless you're challenging the kind of overarching nature of um of the state and and the regressive controls of of immigration and so on that 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 isn't um uh, a kind of worthwhile political challenge and i think whilst i broadly agree with some aspects of that critique i think we need to nuance it in two ways so one is to highlight that in the context of the cuts that we've seen in the context of this transition around compass those support services and drop-in centres and small spaces that do exist are all there is now. So if there's going to be a kind of politicisation around asylum dispersal, politicisation around these kind of issues that comes through those processes, then that's going to be the only space left for that to happen. And also I think we need to consider that spaces of care aren't necessarily about denying the exclusionary politics of asylum. That They're not simply about you know, putting sticking plasters over massive gaping wounds. But they're actually about the kind of politics of providing a moment of respite within that process. So that walk becomes a kind of moment of small respite within the everyday politics of, of living, um, living asylum. And points at which that kind of... Uh, those exclusionary politics are, are slightly dampened and the, the effects of them are, are momentarily forgotten. They're never forgotten entirely. Spaces of care, drop-in centres, these kind of things are constantly interrupted by the exclusionary politics of asylum. It might be a letter refusing someone's status that's being translated. It might be the absence of a friend because they've been detained or deported, these kind of things. But I think there are small kind of achievements of momentary escape that do matter because they form friendships and we shouldn't underestimate the power of that and the... And, and the, the, the the capacity of that to, 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 um, to give people a, a kind of sense of solidarity. But they also provide opportunities to identify across difference. And that's, I think, important in terms of moving forward and thinking about alternative kind of political readings of this. So I'm just going to skip you through a couple of things, but we can come back to this if you want. It's mainly theory stuff. Um, and just close, really, by thinking about how we might consider a shift from notions of, of spaces of care, these kind of relatively everyday prosaic aspects, to something more generalised, something thinking about what is the politics of responsibility here? Because when we consider Compass as a privatised system and we consider the, the support structures that exist around asylum being increasingly commercialised, responsibility is the thing that is deferred or lost in that process often. And it comes back to this point about what is ultimately held in common. What 
are the kind of perceptual frames that we understand asylum um, and understand asylum support through. Because care isn't going to be enough. We need to think about kind of responsibilities that, that do alternative things. Because this, this kind of notion of, of closure is important because it closes alternative ways of thinking about dispersal. And there are alternative ways of understanding dispersal. And there are alternative ways of understanding the relationship between asylum seekers, refugees and cities. It's just we never really hear about them. So one might be uh, Jenny Fillimore's work on asylum-led regeneration. The fact that if you look at certain parts of northern England, Glasgow is a very good example of this, there are certain parts of those cities that have been enhanced in varying different ways, culturally, economically, socially, through asylum dispersal. We think about literature around insurgent urban citizenships as kind of acts of citizenship, all these kind of um, inactive, kind of um, uh, performative politics that are often tied to the kind of diversity and, and turbulence of the city. But I think we can also think about what's important about presence. And this is something that I'm trying to conceptually work on in future work, is what, what's the significance and importance of being somewhere? What are the kind of politics of presence as, as a, a, a kind of uh, a political right, a political claim, and what, what forms of political responsibility go with that? And I think that, in part, is what's interesting for me about what's going on in Europe right now, is that it's about the presence of a whole series of people in varying different ways, in ways that aren't purely about fixity, but they're not also purely about mobility. There are kind of different um, rhythms going on here. So within this kind of idea, if we, if we constantly look at, look at no alternatives, we get a system where dispersal is talked about as a burden, so we've seen this um, ever since its inception. 1998, it was described as a means to relieve the burden on provision in London. Um, ever since that statement, pretty much, dispersal has been termed in this kind of notion of, of a burden. We can see it today in discussions between different cities about how they're being unfairly treated. So Joe Anderson, the mayor of Liverpool, described it as an asylum apartheid, whereby the north of England and Scotland were being unfairly burdened with asylum seekers and the south of England were, were not being so. Uh, last month, I think it was, Portsmouth um, City Council voted to remove itself from the dispersal process, arguing that they were being unfairly burdened uh, by comparison to their neighbours, despite the fact that, by comparison to anywhere in the north, they were taking significantly lower dispersal numbers. So this is very much a kind of dominant way of reading and understanding this. Um, but there are kind of variable responses from local authorities within this, and that's where I think we can consider responsibility. For me, if we think about a response to dispersal being privatised, it has to come from local authorities, it has to come from cities who are in part of this process. So in October 2010, Birmingham City Council announced that they were going to withdraw from this contract, um, and this, in a way, was the kind of precursor to privatisation in some ways. But what was important about this was not that one of the largest municipalities in the country decided they no longer wanted to house asylum seekers in public housing. It was actually the language in which they came out and did it. So they said, this is their head of housing at the time, hundreds of Brummies, hundreds of my people, are in B&Bs instead of council-provided homes. Why should that be? My people have got to come first. The asylum seekers arrive here, they have a blooming family, and they keep having children. It's a burden on the system. So this was significant not only for the kind of message it sends around prioritisation, my people and so on, 
but also in Birmingham it was significant because it sent a message to support services, to RCOs, to um, other kind of uh, support infrastructure, that actually their authority didn't really want to have much to do with them. And so this was a really significant kind of political moment of, of, of retrenchment, of stepping away um, from this as a responsibility and as a concern. But this was in 2010. And I think what we've seen since then is an increasingly fractured and divisive setup, whereby some local authorities are following this model, washing their hands, deciding they don't want to be involved, and others are actually taking the opposite viewpoint. So Sunderland is a city that a local authority who have actually become more interested in asylum since 2010. Since it became no longer their responsibility, they've decided that actually it's an issue that they feel they should have some say on. And so they've started kind of mobilising around supporting more organisations and supporting um, uh, kind of work with Newcastle, so partnership work. Similarly, Laura, who's a, an activist uh, from the Midlands, says that the Compass contract makes it easier to engage some local councils in opposition because they're no longer kind of part of this system. They can actually oppose now. They're no longer kind of in contract in that same way. And I think why this is important, really, is that if we're going to scale up any sense of those small moments of, of kind of contact and care and think about a wider responsibility that denies this notion of a burden and that actually thinks about this as a question of social justice and a question of politicisation rather than kind of depoliticisation to some extent, then we need cities and local authorities to lead on these kind of things. We actually need political leadership that expresses concerns to a population rather than following, um, following that population's uh, kind of political whims. And this, for me, was articulated very well by um, this guy who works for an RCO in Birmingham, Warren. I'm going to conclude with what Warren says. Because he was reflecting on what's happened since Birmingham came out and said they no longer wanted to be part of this. He says that the local authority, from completely shutting the door on voluntary sector organisations like ours and from making political capital of we're going to wash our hands of this situation has now moved back to the idea of actually that's not a very good thing to do because basically that causes us more problems than otherwise. Things like destitution of asylum seekers is a significant uh, problem in many cities and that by kind of washing your hands of responsibility that provides you with no, no leeway to actually do anything about this. So to go back to Warren, the Home Office, a lot of its decision, decisions seem to be based on the fantasy that if we're unpleasant enough it will go away. These people will just apply to go home voluntarily. And I think that's part of what was informing Birmingham's previous approach. We just withdrew. We had nothing to do with these people. These people will have nothing to do with us. But actually, that's not true. So I guess it's about looking at what your definition of a citizen is. And a citizen you might well want to look at as anyone who's actually here that you're going to have a responsibility for rather than trying to pick and choose who that is. Our people. They're all your people, whether you like it or not. So that's where I want to conclude. Thank you very much for your time.